Open your heart. Open my life and let them see a father's love. And preacher, good work with that family. Praise God. You had admonition for all of us and we needed it. Oh God, we've been much in worship. We have a few moments left. We go to the word of God together. But as the singer is just saying, Open our smiles, open our hearts, that the world might see the Father's love. It may be the only chance. So use us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've had a, we've had a uh, full-court press season. I'm talking about since last, the end of August till summer began. This weekend, this last weekend, we had American Apocalypse. That was heavy sledding. We had the maker of all things, loves and wants me. That was heavy sledding. We had marriage that we just finished up. That was, that was heavy sledding. So for summer, come on, let's do something a bit lighter. How about animals? Don't you just love this graphic? I just love that picture of those animals. For the love of an animal, four Sabbaths in a row, summertime has begun. What can we learn from an animal? Well, we'll start today. I'm not going to tell you what today's animal is. The title is, For the Love of an Animal, Hee-haw. You just have to kind of guess. Hee-haw. But you won't know. You don't know yet until we get into it. I grew up in a home that loved animals. In fact, when I was born, my parents had an animal in the house, a German shepherd. You ever own a German shepherd? Wow, what a dog. The dog's name was Retzer, a good German name. And in fact, I'll just show you a picture because he, I came along that year and that was my first Christmas, but there's that German shepherd, Retzer. This is my dad, handsome dad, and that's my beautiful mother. And uh, my dad never had the courage to tell his brother-in-law, Fernand Retzer, that he named the dog after him because, you know, you know, but he needed a German name for a German dog. Although both of us, the dog and I were born in Japan, so I don't know how all that worked. But when, when I was about three years old, somewhere in there, I'm, I was playing in the backyard there in Japan, and uh, somebody left the gate open, so out I went. Gone. My mother is frantic when she finally discovers the boy is not here. She says, well, I'll go down and check the lake. We, there was a city park, and there was a lake in that park. I'll go down and check that lake. And when she got there, she saw a crowd of Japanese adults and children. They're all staring at something. And she works her way through the crowd, and there's this little tiny American boy, three years old. This is in the mid-50s, and so American boy was rather rare on those uh, premises. But the crowd was standing back. You know why? Because Retzer had seen me leave and had trotted along beside me, my little guardian angel. I grew up loving animals. You know what? I believe we all did. We took a show of hands right now. We'd all raise our hands. Oh, me too, Dwight. I really love animals because God made us to love animals. You know why? Because God is an animal lover. Let me run some one-liners by you just to prove to you in case you had a doubt. This is the book of Job, chapter 12, verses 8 and 10. But ask the animals, Job says, and they will teach you, or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, in the Lord's hand is the life of every creature and the breath of all mankind. Same God, same creator. We all came from his hand. He loves animals. and he, The maker of all things loves and wants you and me too. He loves all of us. 
Ah, come on, here's the great Psalm 104. The earth is full of your creatures, O God. All creatures look to you to give them their food at the proper time. He's feeding, he's feeding the human race as best he can, hoping that we'll help. But he's feeding the animal kingdom as well. We got a feeder in our, right off our deck, and uh, the raccoon just loves it. We put the feeder out. The raccoon was there last night. I checked this morning. He loves this feeder. He thinks it's for him. It's a Baltimore Oreo feeder where you put a, a, a jar of uh, Welch's grape juice and you turn it upside down. And it just, as they eat, it just keeps going. And the, the raccoon has figured it out, old Rocky raccoon. And when, it, when he flips the feeder over, we know he's coming. It was flipped over this morning. Look at that's God for you. He gives them, I don't know if that's concerning uh, Welch's grape jelly, but he gives them their food at the proper time. Look at this. Whoop, hitting the wrong button. Jonah. Okay, let's go to the book of Jonah. This is a great book, by the way, 13 questions. The final line in Jonah is a question, and God is asking it. You want to know what kind of an animal lover God is? Take a look at this. God speaking. This is petulant Jonah pouting because God didn't nuke the city of Nineveh. So Jonah is Jonah's pouting, and God says, yo, boy, should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals? You wanted me to nuke that city? I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lose that many animals. He loves animals. Today, you know what we call it in the bloody wars that occupy this planet? We call it collateral damage. Oh, so sad the animals got killed. We even treat humans as collateral damage in war. Well, we killed a few. We didn't mean to. There's no collateral damage with the lover of animals. You're not going to say, I'm not going to take that city out. From the, bar- from the very beginning... From the get-go, God has been a lover of animals. And I'm going to tell you something. From the get-go, the devil has been a hater of animals. The moment Adam and Eve yield sovereignty to Lucifer's fallen hands, we had this planet, we give it to you now because we, we obey you. The moment they did that, that diabolical mind began cell by cell to disassemble and destroy the creation and creatures of God. Just like that, it started. Oh, look, at what do you think Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 8? The famous line. Oh, you've no doubt read this, Romans 8, 20 to 22, for the creation was subjected to frustration. Are you kidding? Not by its own choice. Innocent creatures suffer. You know why? Because you sin and I sin. That's why they suffer. They're suffering right now, frustrated, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage one day, bondage to decay, and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Now, keep reading. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This little mother that we just met a moment ago, she's given birth to a few children. You heard that. She groaned to get that last child out, didn't she? That's what nature is doing, groaning. When do we get delivered of this mess on the planet? No, God is an animal lover, and it, it kills him. In fact, did over the pain of this creation. Sin has shafted the creation, shafted it. 
oh, this is Desire of Age. Is that classic on the life of Jesus? Oh, this is, this is a heavy reading right here. Satan's hatred against God leads him to hate every object of the Savior's care. He seeks to mar the handiwork of God, and he delights in destroying even the dumb creatures. Gah, they're all roadkill to him. He doesn't care. Ah, I got another one. It is only through God's protecting care that the birds, and I'm adding the words, and the birds and the beavers and the baboons and the blue whales are preserved to gladness. God is keeping this planet going. He is the, he is the sustainer, not just of the human race, but of the entire ecosystem. He loves animals. Do you understand that? He loves animals because he's an animal lover. Lauren, we Lauren Isley, the great... Uh, anthropologist and naturalist, a collection of his essays. I had to go on to Amazon.com to get it. I read it once upon a time years ago. I found a used book, and I bought it. It's worth it. His essays under the title, The Star Thrower. Ooh, he's making a point. Watch this. Some scientific research can result in behavior so remarkably cruel. He's talking about science now. Behavior so remarkably cruel that it ceases to be objective, but rather suggests a deep grain of sadism. That's the joy over suffering. Grain of sadism that is not science. No, it is not. The, exper the experiments are too revolting to chronicle here, he writes in this particular essay. The cost, a half a million dollars to mutilate cats. Somebody got a grant from the government. Half a million just to strip cats down and kill them while they're alive. The cost... It would appear, keep reading, lies not alone in animal suffering, as bad as that is, but in the dehumanization of those willing to engage in such blind and random cruelty. Mercy. What have we done to this planet? And what are we doing to the animals in our homes? Oh, you're going to talk about pets? Why not? This is a four-part series on animals. We might as well. I'm going to share with you one of the strangest animal stories in all of Holy Scripture because it makes a point. Just think, just think the words animal cruelty as we go to this story. All right? Open your Bible because I'm not putting it on the screen. Numbers chapter 22. Open your Bible to Numbers chapter 22. The children of Israel are poised on the brink of the promised land. They are there. The next steps will be to cross the Jordan. And I want to tell you something. When the devil knows that we are on the brinks of eternity, he marshals every deception he can to destroy God's people. Watch what's going to happen right now in front of our eyes here in Numbers chapter 22. So there's this king of Moab named Zippor, all right? So he's the king of the Moabites. And when he sees this, as he calls it, horde, of liberated slaves that now surround this kingdom, tents as far as the eye can see. He says, I got to do something. I got to have, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to curse. I'm going to have these people curse. That's what I'm going to do. He knows that there is over near the Euphrates River, there is a prophet of the most high God who believes in the God of creation. He says, I'll get Balaam. That's what I'll do. I'll get Balaam. I'll offer him money. And I'll say, boy, come over here and curse these people because I know that what you curse gets cursed and what you bless gets blessed. So I'm calling you. So he sends a delegation of his officials, Midianite, Moabite officials, and they show up near the Euphrates River. They show up. That's a long way to go for a curse. They show up and they say, we're from King Zippor. Greetings. We want you to do something for us. And they read the message of the king. Curse these people. 
You know what Balaam says? Guys, might as well spend the night with me because I have to talk to God tonight. So drop down to uh, verse 8. That's what he says. Spend the night here, Balaam said to them, and I will report back to you with the answer the Lord gives me. So the Moabite officials stayed with him. And guess who shows up at night? Here comes God. God came to Balaam, verse 9, and he asked, who are these men with you? Why are they bunking up with you? Balaam said to God, well, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. A people that has come out of Egypt that covers the face of the land. Come and put a curse on them. Perhaps then I may be able to fight them and drive them away. That's what he told me. But God said to Balaam, this, this seems pretty clear to me, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. That's the divine passive. The divine passive in Hebrew means God is the subject. And what God is really saying is, I blessed them. Don't you touch them. Don't you put a finger on them. I blessed them. So Balaam, the next morning, wakes the guys up. He said, guys, you might as well hit the road because I just got the message from God. Verse 13, go back to your own country, fellas, for the Lord has refused to let me go with you. Now, I'll tell you, this is, this is how Balaam said it. My mommy won't let me come out and play. My daddy says, I can't play any more baseball with you. Petulant child. That's what Balaam is. The delegation goes back to Moab. They said, oh, great king Zippor. Guess what? He says, no. No, you can't be serious. Offer him more money. And now he says, I'm sending the top, the top officials of my kingdom. And that's exactly what he does. They show up, the top officials. Now, and they got bakshish. They have money to spare. We'll pay you handsomely. And, and now, notice Balaam's response, which was pretty good until he kept going. All right? So here's his, here's his response in verse 18. But Balaam answered them, the second delegation, even if Balaam gave me, gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of the Lord my God. And he finally calls, calls God the name, the, the name that the Israelites have given him, Yahweh. That's my God. If he had just stopped there, we'd have been fine. Israel would have been okay. But oh no, he's got a cash register with dollar signs in his eyes. And he goes on. He should have stopped. He goes on. He says, listen, why don't you spend the night here so that I can find out what else the Lord might tell me. You know what? Balaam is just like you and me. We know it's wrong. Our conscience tells us it's wrong. God has told us it's wrong. We keep going back to God and say, you know what? How about this time? This time, it surely will be right. This time, will be okay with you, God? Stay here. I'll ask him again. <laughs> oh, brother, I wouldn't want to be Balaam now. Verse 20, that night, God came to Balaam, and he said, since these men have come to summon you, go with them, but do only what I tell you. You know why God said that? Because there's no sense in saying no. God has been saying, God has said to Balaam, which, side, which, which part of the no do you not understand, the N or the O? I don't understand, Balaam says. I mean, do you want me to do this? It's really not clear to me. Give me a break, God says. Okay, you go, but you say only what I say, what I tell you. So that's exactly what happens. But Balaam got up in the morning and saddled his donkey. There it is. Ding, 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 ding. Today's animal, boys and girls. We just saw it. He saddles up his donkey, and he went with them all by the officials. But God was very angry when he went. You know, the maker of all things loves and wants us. I get it. 
But don't you forget that the maker of all things can get pretty angry when his creation is at stake or his friends are threatened. He gets angry. And so God was very angry when he went. And the angel of the Lord, by the way, code language in, he, in Hebrew, oftentimes for the second person of the triune God. This would be the pre-incarnate Christ. He often shows up as the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord stood in the road to oppose him. Balaam was riding, riding on his donkey with his two servants who were with him. And when, now get this, and when, verse 23, the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And he's pointing the sword. And you know what that drawn sword is saying? One more step. And the donkey, who in this story turns out brighter than Balaam, the donkey knows what that means. Balaam is so ticked off. He takes the end of that, those reins. When that donkey gets him out in the middle of the field, he just starts bam, slap, whipping him. You stupid, dumb creature. Hold it, Balaam. You know who's the dumb one, don't you? You are such an idiot. He gets the donkey back on the road. They're going now. Then, verse 24, the angel of the Lord stood in a, in a narrow path through the vineyards with walls, walls on both sides. And when the donkey saw the same angel of the Lord with the sword, it pressed close to the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against his... Ow! Oh, you, 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 and... Have you ever seen a man kick a dog? You ever seen a woman throw a cat across the room? Animal cruelty is not... Is not relegated to the story of Balaam's donkey. Animal cruelty happens all around us and sometimes among us. I'm not talking about spousal abuse now. That's a whole other sermon. I'm talking about animal abuse. You want social justice in your, in your uh, repertoire? Why don't you take up animal cruelty? That'll keep you busy for a while. Then, verse 26, the angel of the Lord moved on ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no room to turn either to the right or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, there's nothing left to do. He just collapsed on all fours. Maybe, I don't know, maybe Balaam's legs got cut or, or pinched under the donkey. We don't know, but it's, it gets worse. It's not the reins now. Balaam reaches into his little saddle, and you know what he pulls out? Verse 27, when the donkey saw and laid down, Balaam was angry and he beat it with his staff. He brings out a wooden staff. I wish there was, I wish this was, this was a sword. I'd get you right now. I would lop that old dumb head of yours off your body, but I'm going to beat you now till you'll never forget this. Pam, 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 pam. Do you get it? Do you get it yet? Hey, donkey, how's this feel, huh? Bam. Some people treat their wives that way. Some people treat their children that way. It's sad. It's tragic. But this is an animal. Just as sad, I suppose, animal lovers looking on as we are. But <laughs> the story gets even stranger. Verse 28, then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth. Look out. When God opens a donkey's mouth, you better just get out of there. That's, I'm telling you, if you, if you meet a talk, talking donkey again, just get out. Just, just go. 
Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it said to Balaam, I love this exchange, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Balaam answered the donkey. That's the funniest part of all. This is his donkey. This is his donkey. Who's the donkey now? Balaam answered the donkey, you have made a fool of me. Balaam, you already did a good job yourself. You made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. And the donkey's not through. The donkey says to Balaam, yo, wait a minute. Am I not your donkey? Well, Balaam said, yeah, 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 you are. Which you have always ridden to this day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. You, you are. Have I been in the habit of doing this to you before? No, I don't ever recall it. Come to think of it. And then... The Lord who's opened the donkey's mouth opens Balaam's eyes. (laughs) And he's down on all fours just like the donkey. Verse 31, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with his sword drawn and he bowed down low and fell face down. Now watch this. It's not over quite. The angel of the Lord asks him, why have you beaten your donkey these three times? I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. How many times do we set out on a path that's already reckless and we know it, but we go into that path anyway. It's a reckless one before me and the donkey saw me and the donkey turned away wisely from me these three times. If it had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now and I would have spared the donkey. That's pretty heavy language. Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, Oh, I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me now. If... What? Do you see this? If you are displeased. Man, when you want to sin, you're just going to sin no matter what God says to you. If you are displeased, Balaam, what do you think he is? Happy? If you are displeased, I will go back. The angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with these men, but speak only what I tell you. So Balaam went with Balak's officials. And guess what? That's the end. That's the end for us, the story. The story doesn't end there because Balaam can't say what he wants to say, so there's no money in that. Instead, he concocts a strategic plan. The people of God are on the verge of the promised land, and Balaam designs a sexual assault strategy on Israel through fornication, adultery, and sex gone mad. How sad. Makes you wonder when the people of God come to the borders of eternity, will the M.O. be the same for the same Satan? Will he turn sex loose amongst the people of God? Wow. But God bless that donkey, and he did. With a powerful appeal, the story that that domesticated creature brings to us, the powerful appeal are these two words, human kindness. Human kindness. Would Jesus have, would Jesus have treated Balaam's donkey the way Balaam did? Give me the answer. What is it? Of course not. Are you kidding, Dwight? Jesus, can you imagine that? Not only was Jesus, by the way, the pre-incarnate creator of donkeys, his very first bassinet or cradle was a wooden box of donkey feed we call a manger. He is close to donkeys. His first bedroom is a smelly barnyard animal's stable. 
He loves animals. His story began surrounded by animals. Don't ask me, does Jesus love animals? They are sprinkled in the stories about him. They are, they are embedded in the stories from him, his parables, animals, animals, animals. Jesus was a lover of animals. Thus, the truth is that love or the lack thereof for animals says something very major about human character. Very major. To the place and organization. You ever heard of PETA, the organization, P-E-T-A? Yeah, you have. People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. They have gained a global reputation for animal care and animal rights. Oh, listen to this. I went to their homepage. Although I discovered, by the way, finding their homepage, that there's a big controversy out there about PETA's strategies because PETA's strategy is simple. Just euthanize every animal you can get a hold of and deliver that animal from its oppression, which is kind of a crazy, in, in, in some uh, terms, strategy. But in the name of animal rights, look what, look what PETA advocates. Let me put this on the screen. This is from their home page. So speaking of animals, the question is not can they, can animals reason, nor can they talk, but the question is can they suffer? That's what, Peter, that's what Peter is telling us. And in that passage, Jeremy Bentham, who deals with moral philosophy, okay? So Jeremy Bentham points to the capacity for suffering as the vital characteristic that gives a being the right to equal consideration. I want to challenge that thinking. As PETA founder Ingrid Newkirk has said, I'm quoting her now, when it comes to pain, love, joy, loneliness, and fear, a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. Each one values his or her life and fights the knife. End quote. I beg to differ with you, Sister Newkirk, because I disagree with your statement that conflates animal creatures into some sort of moral equivalence and value with human beings. I can understand somebody embracing Darwinism to embrace what you've just suggested. But as a Christian, I thoroughly believe that of all the creatures that the Creator created, there is only one creature, given the divine, as, as the theologians call, call, call it, the imago dei, the image of God. There's only one creature. There's no, there's no misunderstanding in God's mind. Let's see. Is the pig the same? Is the, no, there's no, there's no misunderstanding. I reject this business of a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, that sort, of, that sort of symbiosis and conflation, they are not the same. Which, however, let us be quick to remind ourselves that does not diminish our human responsibility to provide creation care for creation creatures. I like the way the SPCA puts it. You've heard of the SPCA, haven't you? Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to What? Animals. The local chapter here in uh, southwest Michigan, on their front page, home page, the, I'm quoting now, the SPCA of southwest Michigan is a no-kill shelter. We don't kill our animals. Dedicated to working for the well-being, and I say bravo to them, dedicated to working for the well-being of animals and creating an adoption-focused community in southwest Michigan. Our goal is to end senseless animal euthanasia in southwest Michigan and provide all animals with a loving, caring home. Now, I think that's a rather creative solution. Don't euthanize them. Just find homes for them. It's still a challenge, I'm sure. 
But we need to stand, you and I, against cruelty toward animals, the kind of cruelty that Balaam demonstrated very vividly before our eyes this morning. Or, listen up now, the kind of mass-produced slaughterhouse animal cruelty that keeps America's fast food counters and home tables supplied with animal flesh and animal products. Now nobody's listening. I believe social justice for animals, Dwight, but don't talk to me about diet. No, I'm talking to you about diet. We must stand against such cruelty. I get it. You want social justice? Defend the way the, these animals are being slaughtered by the thousands for America's appetite. By the thousands. Look at the methods of slaughter. Just look. I like the way John Peckham in his brand new book, Divine Attributes, describes what we're faced with. He's, he's, it's a wonderful book, by the way, and I'm... I'm uh, two-thirds of the way through the book. He describes God's sovereign care for his creation and his creatures. And, and in that uh, chapter, he, he makes this statement. I want you to get it. God calls humans to be stewards, even in some sense co-rulers of this planet, as Genesis 1.28 makes very clear. Humans are to be caretakers rather than dominators, valuing fellow creatures as God's creation and taking care of creation as best we can. We might pay closer attention to our diet, fostering ethical eating, and moving toward diets that are more earth-friendly. And as he writes, my colleague Rahel Wells puts it, she teaches in the undergrad religion department, cruelty-free. Oh, I like that. A, a cruelty-free diet. As Scripture repeatedly emphasizes, God, God cares for animals, and a righteous man has regard for the life of his animal. Proverbs 12.10. We just looked at that a moment ago. To return to the point, Jesus was obviously an animal lover who not only talked the talk, but he walked the walk and displayed kindness to people and animals. Oh, I've got to share this with you. This is such a beautiful depiction of Jesus here. This is Desire of Ages again. Jesus was the fountain of healing mercy for the world. And through all those secluded years at Nazareth. I mean, we know he went to the temple when he was 12, but what happened before 12 and what happened after 12? Through all those secluded years at Nazareth, his life flowed out in currents of sympathy and tenderness. The aged, these are the people he loved on, the aged, he was kind to, the aged, the sorrowing, and the sin-burdened. The children at play in their innocent joy, the little creatures of the groves, the patient beasts of burden, all were happier for Jesus' presence. Could that be said about you when you leave a room or you leave a neighborhood? All were happier because you were there. Mm-hmm. Wow, indeed. He whose word of power upheld the worlds would stoop to relieve, relieve a wounded bird. He didn't have the power. Yo, birdie, broken wing, Psh, be healed. He didn't do that. He couldn't do it. Didn't want to do it. But he stooped to relieve a wounded bird. I'll take you home, birdie. I see that wing. Ooh, I think we can set it. Get a little wood from my carpenter shop. I think we can set it. I'll feed you till you're strong, and then we'll let you go. There was nothing beneath Jesus' notice, nothing to which he disdained to minister. Amazing. He was kind. He was kind to animals. He was kind to humans. Jesus was a kind man. And guess what? We must be kind men and women and teens and children and young adults. We must be a kind people. I don't get one amen for that. 
You love the Balaam part, but now you're just sitting there. We must be kind people. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, love is kind. We've got to be kind. People, when we walk out of a room, they're saying, those, those are kind people. Those are my kind of people. Yeah. Abraham Joshua Heschel, the great uh, rabbi and scholar. When I was young, I admired clever people. Now that I am old, I admire kind people. Are we kind? Are we known? Are you known as a kind person? I'm going to confess something to you. When I was younger in ministry, I used to think of leaders, good leaders, as take charge kind of people. You know, they know where they're going. They know, they know how they're going to get there. And, oh, boy, they would just demonstrate that kind of aggressive, forward thinking. They were not unkind. Don't misunderstand me. But they were, they were not so focused on kindness. And in fact, I came to the place where I saw kindness as a trait almost on the edge of weakness. You know, I mean, please... Kind people are a bit weaker, you know, you, I thought. Less aggressive, less destined for great things. I had a father whom I loved dearly. And due to this day, though he sleeps in Jesus, he was very kind. He was fun to be around. He was a hoot sometimes. But he was a kind person. And he was a leader. But I confess this to my shame. I wondered sometimes if he wasn't too kind. He didn't make the right moves. He didn't set himself up for something. He was always looking out for the other people. Why would you do this? But as the, as the years have gone by, and I suppose life has a way of mellowing us, I have come to realize how wrong I have been. I have discovered kindness is not a weakness. It is a towering strength. Strength. My father possessed that strength, and I've seen others who do as well. Listen to me carefully. If you have to abandon kindness to get to where you're going, okay, I'm talking to you now. If you have to abandon kindness to get to where you're going, then where you are going isn't worth going to. You understand me? I'll repeat that. You didn't get it. If you have to abandon kindness to get to where you are going, then where you are going isn't worth going to. We are in a political season in this nation where the press and the public reward men and women who are unkind to others, who publicly belittle and make fun of their opponents, whose trash talk is somehow a virtue to aspire to. That's the America we live in now. To the place those who advocate kindness or demonstrate it or attempt to live it are mocked. They are belittled, sadly rejected by a public that has become as unchristlike as, is, as, as its political leaders, or maybe it's the other way around. The leaders have become like the people. Now, look, I am not suggesting all political leaders must be Christian. But I'll tell you this I am saying as clearly as I know how that all leaders of moral worth will be kind people. Because kindness is a virtue. 
a noble virtue, a strength. And you know what? I will not follow a leader who is not kind. I will not attach my wagon to his destiny or her destiny. Why? I'm not saying all politicians ought to become Christians. I'm saying everybody needs to be kind, just like Jesus. And I want to be like Jesus. You say, Dwight, how can I be like Jesus? Well, I'll tell you how. You just follow this universal law. What we behold, we become. Never forget that. You can't break that law. It can break you. You can't break it. What you behold, you become. So I promise you that if you will set aside some quiet time every morning to focus your mind and your heart on Jesus, read one of the Gospels through, one story a day, one story at a time. Read the Desire of Ages through, be my guest, one story a day, one story at a time. I promise you that if you will spend your time some time at the beginning of every day beholding Jesus, I promise you that you will become imperceptibly to you but noticeable to those around you. You will become more and more like Jesus. And that's what I want to be. I want to be kind like Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, God, have mercy on us. We all stand convicted. Thank you for loving us through this. Please love us out of it, our unkindness. Love us out of our unkindness. Let us become more and more like Jesus, who was strong, who was kind, and who is God. We want to be like him. In his name we pray. Amen. There's an old gospel chorus that goes like this. Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home and in the throng. Be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus.